Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Opambele. Uh, although we work on noticing several infrastructure damages uh, thanks to hail and storm here in Johannesburg, I'm still delighted to share this space and time with you as we continue to bring you insights and observations uh, from my esteemed guest. As always, I'm not flying solo. I'm flanked by two extraordinary producers. Vosi Masinga and Harry Seleke Gentlemen, one, once again Thank you very much for a job Well done, I'm entirely grateful For the, your argument uh, In my last encounter, I had a very Interesting conversation with Francois Fauché, uh, who is an economist and research Fellow at Gibbs and University of Northwest Our conversation focused uh, Mainly on the aftermath Of BRICS convention As you know, we had a BRICS convention Here in our shows Amidst fiscal cliff and slippery road, deep hole we, which we have dug ourselves in as a South Africans. To most of us, that was like a messiah. And we hoping we were obviously debunking those kinds of issues so that we get to know exactly where we are at, given the high unemployment rate, poverty, and inequality that we're facing in our country. And we've just learned that government is exercising austerity measures that just, it's like a chair on top saying chuck it tongue in cheek. Anyway, if you miss that particular show, not to worry, simply go to our website, which is www.highfm.com, share your views via our uh, SMS line, which is 34519. Of course, your views and uh, thoughts are most welcome via my Twitter handles, which is Dr. Mbere. Today, I'm joined by Silo Lidisa, who is a historian and an author. He's written, he has written an amazing book titled Dodging the Civil War Bullets, very loaded statement, if you ask me. Without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to welcome my guest, Dr. Lidisa, you must come to Beyond Government. Thanks for your time. Hi, my name uh, Nimrod, and thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you. Absolutely. Before we, we kick off our conversation, I'm sure I will be joined by a fellow a broadcaster, Dr. Somolobi, um, who is the producer of your show. He's obviously having some technical issues. He will join us uh, in a short while. Take us briefly, Rasulullah. Who is Sullah in a nutshell? Sullah Ledira was born uh, in Alexander in 1962. Ten years later, with the family forcibly removed by the apartheid government from, so from Alexander to Tembisa, and thereafter, Sadlalidira went to the University of the North, which you call the University of Limpompo, in 1982 for a four-year degree called uh, BA in Pedagogics. 
a big weight for education, you know. So for four years, I was at the University of the, of, of, of the Mpopo from 1982 to 1985. That's when I actually made contact with Sol Molobi because we were young student activists, you know, doing our best, you know, to bring about change in our country. And then I started working in 1986 as a lecturer in Queenland Limpopo teaching, you know, English uh, at that particular institution. Fortunately, in 1994, when we went for our first democratic elections, I was one of the first senior members to establish the government of Limpopo under the leadership of Premier Mwagora Matodi. And I worked very closely with uh, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, who was the MEC for, for education. I stayed in the public service for until 1999 when I decided to leave the public service and do my things, you know, in the private sector and start writing books. And by the way, this is my, my third book. I'm essentially a social activist that takes uh, interest in matters of society, especially issues of, in, of injustice. Interesting uh, history on that note. When you spoke of Limpopo, what came to mind, University of Limpopo, I immediately thought of Brasol as a possible point where you guys have met. Brasol, obviously the cat is out of the bag. So this is how you met uh, uh, Brasol. Good morning uh, to you, Dr. Mbele, and good morning to Silo Lidira. Yes, indeed, I went to the University of Limpopo in 1984, And when I got there, I found that there was a very strong student movement. And considering that I was from the then Buputatswana, where there was no political activity, our politicization only came from the Heinemann African Writers Series. So when I got to the university, I found that what I've been reading about, it was in fact real. And what I read in newspapers, uh, something that was happening in townships such as Soweto. In fact, it was real and I was part of it. And that's how I got recruited into the student movement. And by then I was looking up to a senior activist like Silo. But for me, my interest in, in Silo was that he was one of the senior English students at the university. And I remember as a course one student, um, the lecturer used to tell us that uh, English was like a pyramid. And he said during course one, there are thousands of us. And then if you go to course two, there'll be less than 100. And then if you go to course three, there was less than 10 students registered for a final year. And Silo was one of those. And these are the guys who spoke English very well in student meetings. And <laughs> <laughs> that's how I <laughs> you know, you know, so let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. There's, I want to pick a bone with this pyramid story because I've heard this story so many times. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. 
It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. I'm having a very interesting conversation with Silo Lidicha as well as Sol Molobi. Uh, Silo uh, Lidicha is a historian, a serial author, and a social activist. And of course, uh, our own Sol Molobi, who is an anchor at High FM. Before we took that short break, uh, he made a very interesting anecdote about their meeting at the University of Limpopo back then. And the, the, the point that caught my ear was the fact that English was considered as a, a pyramid. You start of the cost being 20, but at the time you graduate, there's only five. And why has that been the case? Because where I was at Vester some time, we assembled at the Greater Hall, and we were told that, look, it's not every single person wants to be a Vetsi. Uh, everyone wants to be a Vetsi, but it's not every single one of you will graduate. So it, 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 it's a universal way of scaring people. Your take on that, Asilo? Oh, thank you very much. Oh, well, look, uh, Sol is very right. You know, when we started in Koswan in English, we are, I could be, we could have been about two to three hundred, you know. But when I completed English in 1984, we actually happened to be nine. And I can tell you, it's, it's like academic calling, you know, whereby a small number is determined for us to get there. And uh, most of the students just fell by the wayside. Well, to me, it looks like it was uh, systemic and by design that people fell out, you know, because I think a lot of those students, you know, probably had the capacity to graduate in English. But I think the system just did not want to produce so many uh, clever blacks who you know, could speak English. So maybe that was the reason. I do not know. Another <laughs> <laughs> interesting, another interesting way, clever back. So, so I mean, I'm I'm happy that you looked at you. Your diagnosis was more at a systemic level, not so much about the capabilities of people. Because look, I mean, English is our second language or third language in some instances. But most of us were able to compete pretty much at the same level as the, 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 the first speaking language. But anyway, that's not a bone of contention on this glorious day. You have written a book entitled Dodging the Civil War Bullet. First and foremost, there's so much material that has been written about civil war in this country or impending civil war and so on and so forth. And you have acknowledged in your book that similar accounts of South African so-called miracle, you know, was narrated and however, you took a different context, and the context was that of academia. Take us through, first and foremost, that that particular trajectory, and secondly, why the title? Thank you very much. You know, I must start by indicating that uh, because I was an activist even towards the late 80s, you know, when FW declared and banned people's organizations on the 2nd of February 1990, a lot of us were taken by surprise, mainly because we did not know what was happening behind the scenes that ultimately led to the unbanning. And I must tell you, Nimrod, that even the senior ANC leadership, in my research, were taken by surprise that on that particular day, FW declared walked into that parliament, that white parliament, and did what it did, you know, which was called Red Friday. And I think the rest, the rest is history. So after that, I, I developed an interest as to exactly what happened behind the scenes 
to bring apartheid to an end to an end in the manner in which it happened. So I dug into the books, you know, I read Nelson Mandela's No Is Walk to Freedom and two other key books, you know, and Neil Barnard, the top apartheid spy, produced a book called Secret Revolution. Uh, and then there's another one called uh, Endgame by Professor V. Esther Reise from the University of Stellenbosch. These books were written by people who were part of the drama that ultimately led to FW Duterte unbanning the people's organizations. So I had now this obsession as to exactly what happened, you know, and that made me to, to read every available material to be able to explain to, to South Africans what happened. Don't forget, Nimrod, that apartheid was probably one of the most intractable mm, challenges facing the world in the 20th century. What projected Nelson Mandela to the status of world icon is because he came from the country of apartheid. So it really became so. As I continued to, to, to learn about our country, I realized how close we were to civil war. And when I looked at it, I said, surely some people had actually thought there was no way South Africa was going to avert civil law, and we did, and that was very interesting to me. So when I say dodging the civil law bullet, basically meaning it looks like we were destined to have civil law in this country. And fortunately, a few men, and the women only, you know, came together from the government, party government, and in particular the African National Congress to say, Guys, we are going to perish together. The best thing is that instead of confrontation and violence, let's talk to each other and find a way out. Well, interesting insight. Um, I just want to bring in Saul here, um, just to juxtapose your, your position that we were on the verge of civil war. I mean, that's one perspective. The other perspective is that we were already in civil war. When you look at uh, from 1985 to 1995, so many lives were lost between the IFP and the ANC back then. That was in any definition that one can think about. was a civil war. Saul, your take on that? My interest in the book is that um, I position it as a a manual on leadership in the times of crisis. And I think this is the, the kind of leadership that each and every country requires, especially if it is in distress. And perhaps I would also say, as South Africans, we also need to look back at that kind of leadership and we draw lessons from that era. And this is what this book has done. The last chapter lo- looks at the leadership lessons from all the protagonists who were involved in the secret talks. But for me also, it speaks to the public posture of, of a leader vis-a-vis what they do behind the scenes of the glare of the of newspaper coverage. For instance, Peter Wilbota, Position, position himself publicly as they called him the crocodile, the, the, the big crocodile, a hardliner who was totally against any forms of negotiations with, with the NC. He didn't, and other liberation movements, he didn't want to be seen as capitulating to the demands of, of the national liberation movement broadly. But behind the scenes, he started the negotiation, the secret talks with the ANC. So you have a public persona 
who was presented as, as a hardliner. But behind the scenes, you, you had this pragmatic person who listened to Mandela when Mandela said, look, we have a stalemate. The country is on fire. We need to be talking to each other to resolve this impasse. So for me, this is the kind of leadership that we need, especially when we are facing yeah, this crisis. Um, you take an example of what is happening now, especially in the Sahel Belt, where there are coups in Niger, in, in Sudan, in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in mm-hmm. Gabon. And I would say this book should be serving as a manual to the negotiators who are involved in all those countries to try to find a negotiator settlement to the crisis that those countries are facing. So this is my interest in, in this book, that it's, it's a leadership manual for all our leaders to say, um, this is what needs to happen uh, behind the scenes for, for a country to be able to deal with the challenges it is facing. That's interesting dimension that you have taken, which resonates with a lot of people, I would imagine, given the fact that we are indeed in a political quagmire. The unemployment is the highest in the country, and we are literally in debt. I've also indicated when we started this conversation that the government has alluded to some severe austerities, given the fact that we are technically bankrupt. But having said that, and that's one perspective that I really appreciate, and I want to Sink my teeth a little bit more uh, as we proceed. Let me bring it back. The man of the house, Silla. Earlier on, uh, Saul dodged my bullet around the very title of the book. And could you just go back to that? Let's have a further conversation on what really inspired you was Saul's perspective on what happens behind the closed doors as a takeaway point that has implications for how other leaders ought to behave. Your thought on that? Yeah, thank you very much. In fact, uh, what Solis alluded to is very important. P.W. Bertha is seen as, as a hardliner, Lord Cocodile, who didn't want to talk to the terrorist and the enemy. But in my research, what I found interesting was that as early as 1979, P.W. Bertha identified a young African professor from the University of the Free State and made him head of national intelligence. And that young man is today called Dr. Neil Barnard, who ran, who ran the, the service from 1980 June until the end, the end of, end of apartheid, you know. So it's quite clear that, that Buota was aware that apartheid itself was not going to survive. However, I think he just lacked the political will to cross the Rubicon to use this, to use, to use this phrase, you know, and, and let, left that to FW Dittler, who, interestingly, was really not part of the secret talks that started as early as 1985, you know, until the 2nd of February, 1990. The question of leadership is critical. Nelson Mandela story is a story of bravery, of resolution, of sacrifice, of struggle. But in my view, the greatest risk he took in his whole life, was to start this secret talks with the apartheid regime without the mandate of the African National Congress, including Oliver Trump. And that is a very interesting thing. And in fact, in, in his book, No Walk to Freedom, he indicates that 
the ANC at that time, around 1985, going, going forward, was not going to be seen to be negotiating with the regime it was planning to topple. And this, this was, a, you know, this revolutionary moment that was going to seize power. At the same time, the apartheid regime also thought to remain in power for as long as it could, you know. And it was Mandela who decided, look, I'm going to start talking to the Boers. And you can't believe it. He was with Sisulu, with Kafrada, with the others in Portsmouth when he started the, the secret talks with the uh, Boer regime. And he not even tell his comrades with whom he was sharing a building at Portsmouth. Because as he put it in his own words, he knew that they would actually kill his initiative if he told them. So he decided to take a risk and say, I'm going to talk to the government alone and when I've made good progress, I will report to my to my organization, the African National Congress. That caused him problems because people heard about it and they started saying he was selling out. And maybe you've heard this Nimrod. People say, yeah, Mandela sold out. It's probably this is the origin of it all, you know. And in fact, Oliver Tama had to send him a note to say, I am worried because I hear that we have started, you know, this talks with the with the white government without us knowing, you know. And then he later said, okay, the only thing I'm doing is just to talk to them in order for them to be able to talk to the African National Congress that you lead, you know. I think that's very important in terms of what Sola said, that it is a question of extraordinary leadership on the side, on the part of Nelson Mandela, something that people did not expect from P.W. Bootha to set up a team led by Neil Barnard to say, start talking to Mandela in prison, while at the same time, Neil Barnard put a, a team saying, start talking to Tabumbeki and his comrades, you know, in England, in order to make sure that we avert the civil war. It's quite interesting um, insights that you've gathered from your book that uh, how the Hurkorodilla was postured by the media and of course by the consecutive at the time that he was this unwavering leader of, of the Afrikaner. And yet behind closed doors, he must have realized that apartheid as a political system was breaking up and given the civil unrest that we're seeing. Those could have been some nuggets which preempted him or perhaps maybe instigated this idea of having a secret talks with Mandela as well as the ANC later on. Your review on that? This was strategically deliberate because if you look at the, the PhD thesis of uh, Dr. Nilbert, he spoke about transformation from state security to national intelligence. Uh, basically, this meant that they were going to move away from obsession with protecting the interests of the state to to t- taking a broader stance where they look at the protection of a country as a nation. And within that context, that's why all these um, engagements, um, dubbed secret talks, were conducted between the ANC in the name of Mandela in prison, but also with the ANC in exile uh, in the name of Mbeki and his team. But also we need to, to note the, the important role that academics and business played in uh, facilitating disengagements between the ANC in exile and, and the ANC um, and, and the business community where they were saying you need to reach out to the ANC because business basically was saying the isolation of South Africa economically and culturally 
was working against them and therefore they made the necessary intervention. And when we talk leadership, this is the kind of leadership that we require as a country even now. And perhaps that's why we have business leadership South Africa. And we, we had a group of CEOs a few weeks ago coming together and proposing to government that they needed to, to intervene in, in helping to resolve uh, the economic crisis that South Africa is facing. And these issues are eloquently covered in this book to say what leadership lessons we could get from the protagonists. But even in this instance, those few African academics and the private sector in general. Let's have a quick break. We'll come back just in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Martin Berger. I am having fascinating conversation with Silo Lidicha, who is an author of a book called Dodging the Civil War Bullets. And he's also joined by Sol Molobi, who is a publisher of this an interesting book, um, which, which, which based on the ensuing conversation comes across as a leadership chapter, if you like. Leadership, to look up a better word, leadership chatter, which could be emulated by other sectors of the economy. But here's the thing. Saul, you made something very important before, as well as you, Russell, the political will. We all know that for anybody to jump or for any entity to jump the so-called Rubicon, you need to possess a very strong political will. We are already in a, a serious fiscal constraint as a country. And we all know what needs to be done, but both businesses lended the olive branch to government to try and address some of these issues. To what extent the issue of a political will or the will in general from the side of government to concede to some of the issues or proposal which has been presented by private, uh, by business to government to try and rescue the country from a total collapse. I mean, when you could look at ESCOM, we all know it, you know, the history is great. You know, there's nothing more about it. Your take on that? Well, my take is that we are in serious trouble as a country. Uh, I just read a, a few days ago that our debt runs at about 4.7 trillion. As you have indicated, Elian Nimro, that uh, there is a circular that has been issued by the Treasury now that the government will not be able to do much, you know, going forward. And that is worrying because the quality cost containment measures that are going to be taken. My view is that this could have been avoided had government taken the right decisions at the right time. The collapse of ESCOM, it's something that should worry all of us, you know, that such a national asset would be allowed to be captured by evil forces, considering the fact that the economy depends so much on this power that comes from ESCOM. Why did that really happen? So I think we're in a situation whereby we need the kind of leadership that we had in the late 
80s that helped us, you know, avert civil war. But in this case, I think it's a democratic South Africa. We need the leadership, not only of the ruling party. I think of all the key stakeholders, you know, in, uh, including business, you know, civil society to say, let's look at the challenge that is facing us as a country. What is it that we can do together in order to save to save our country, you know, from becoming an economic waste, wasteland. I remember the former DG of Treasury, uh, Don Dom Rajani, when he left, he said, we might not be a failed state, but if we don't change course, if we go on the same trajectory, we will become one. So we need this kind of leadership now. Now, I couldn't agree with you more, Saul. Well, what is clear from Silo's perspective is that it's not only leadership that we expect from government, but it's leadership across the board, which is quite remarkable in that um, collective leadership is quite required. But how do we get to a collective leadership when we don't seem to agree ideologically so? And how do we get to a common leadership posture when we are not singing from the same hymn book? What would it take for all this actor group that... Uh, Silo pointed out would require what would that glue that brings us together? Your take on it, so when the president took over, he spoke about a strategic imperative of of establishing a social compact between all the partners, uh, be they uh, civil society, the private sector, uh, and the and the public sector. And we need to accelerate that process of building a consensus amongst all the social partners. And I think there's a strong basis for it. For instance, if we were to go back to the National Development Plan, this was a consensual document which was adopted by all parties that were represented in government then. And I may be wrong, but I have a feeling that we have deviated um, from our our desire to to passionately implement what the national development plan um, entails. Even though, yes, I agree that there are new political parties which have since uh, joined parliament, but the reality is that we need to treat that as as a basis. And the deputy president. Um, a few weeks ago, called for a national dialogue amongst all political parties. And I think it's a step in, in the right direction, but also we need to go beyond that way. We also engage all other social partners. But also NEDLAC is one such um, platform where consensus uh, could be forged between the public, the private, and also civil society sectors. And maybe just to speak to the quality assurance that that we have embarked upon in producing this book, um, let me say to the readers that we are privileged that the former president of the country, Kalema Motlante, who is highly respected across the political spectrum, uh, wrote the foreword to to this book. And we also got um, three highly respected people uh, to review the manuscript for, for us. And this was um, 
Ambassador Willie Lenslapo, one of our veteran diplomats uh, who now serves as the Executive Director for African Center for the Constructive Resolution of Disputes. He's very active across the, the continent on behalf of the country uh, in his mediation efforts like in, in Sudan, in the DRC, in Ethiopia. He's very active in there. And we also got our one and only boss at High FM, Kathy Kayla, who, who also reviewed the, the manuscript and she was just very fascinated uh, about the book. And we also brought on board uh, Tsepe Mutumi, uh, who is a special uh, advisor to the Minister of Defense and Military Veterans. He's also the former Director General of the Department of Military Veterans. When I opened, I said Silo was our senior and my, my, my hero and mentor as he was, he was doing English three, one of the few who were doing English three. But as part of our quality assurance, um, I'll say something that, that perhaps I shouldn't be saying it publicly, but I'm going to say it because I trust, um, high FM listeners. He got a shock of his life when I took the manuscript through the Turn It In quality assurance <laughs> software. It gauges the originality of any written material. And it gives you a score. And we went through that process um, more than four times as we were yearning to get the best uh, universally accepted originality score of over 85%. And indeed, uh, through working with him up and down, and sometimes I know I was irritating him, but I would say, <laughs> please set aside three, three days that you just commit to working on this project. Here's your originality score. I need you to improve on it. And indeed, he, he did that. One day he said, you know what? I've, I've decided to dedicate the entire week to working on this project. I'm tired uh, with it. I just want to finish it. And he did that. And the originality score came way above 85%. Yeah. So the book is highly qualitative. And the reviewers have responded to this. And yes, in fact, one of the reviewers, Ambassador Anshlapo, says, uh, I sincerely recommend this book for its simple style, easy reading, and well-researched materials. Basically, and in his full review, he was saying, when I gave him the manuscript, he thought it's just it's going to be one of those books that he has read. But after reading it, he realized that, in fact, uh, he made himself a favor by agreeing to review it and to read it because he discovered um, new materials. And, and considering that he was one of the senior ranking officials of the ANC in exile, for him to say he has discovered new material, it's, it's, it's a big compliment to Selonidira. Absolutely. There are two things that are brought to attention, and one is that of quality assurance, but two, the issue of the social compact. But I want Selo to respond to your role in quality assuring this particular book, for you would not have been a good friend had you not picked up those kinds of issues, because it would have been worse, I would imagine, if the public would have looked at the book as ah, yet another book that is shallow. Your take on that particular process, um, Selo? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I must be honest with you. When Saul told me about this 
thing of quality assurance, and I did not even know about it, you know. And I've indicated to you that this is my third book, you know. In the first two books, nothing was done, you know, in terms of that, you know. And this was a difficult time. I really felt like a university student with Saul, you know, as my professor and making life difficult for me, you know, <laughs> having to change the things that I personally thought were, were well said, you know. But I realized later that this is very good, you know, in terms of making sure that the book that you present to the public is of such a standard that people will will respect you for the effort that you have made, you know, instead of just saying, ah, no, man, so look, okay, we're, we're comrades, you know, Gunaza, so let's pass this thing, let's publish, you know. So I'm, 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 I'm really grateful, you know, that Saul had, you know, the, the knowledge about this system or instrument, even though it was very hard on me. So I think I must, I must, I must indicate that, you know. The whole issue of the, of the social compact thing, I, I hope that especially the president of this country, who promised that it is going to be important to have this social compact, you know, working and bringing South Africans together. Most people don't realize how far deep we are in this ditch of debt. People receive their, their, their grants, sometimes they don't receive them like now. But I think an ordinary South African does not realize the crisis we are in, economically speaking, uh, financially speaking. And somehow it is through a social compact that this can be brought, you know, forth to ordinary citizens that, hey, don't see yourself as a teacher or as a police person getting paid. This country is technically bankrupt. If nothing is done, some people are saying even our pensions are actually at risk, you know. So I just hope that we get this kind of leadership now that will bring uh, all the stakeholders and help this country to avert an economic uh, 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 crisis, which if not dealt with, I'm sorry, our children and our god grandchildren will curse us forever. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Priscilla, uh, but here's the thing for the social compact. We have had social compacts before, but the basis for any social compacts is trust and openness. Do you think the current leadership is ready to redeem itself and by declaring and winning over the public and private trust? Because there's no, we, we can drop these, these fancy words uh, from time to time. You hit it on a nail that the country is technically bankrupt, but what does it mean to communicating with honesty, to communicate those issues to ordinary people so that people exercise restraint? But we can't say we are in a fiscal quagmire when politicians seem to be living a different lifestyle. Your take yeah, on well. Yeah, well, look, uh, even the timing is bad. Uh, in about nine months' time, we are going to have general elections. And you know, Nimrod, that when you are, you know, in election mode, uh, political parties become selfish, they look at their self-interest, and the question of, of this social compact does not become a, a matter of agency. Uh, and I think that is the problem. That's why I say it's a question of, of timing. And trust itself, if you look at it, you know, I know for a fact that the people who have money, business in this country have been on a strike for a long time in terms of investing, you know, in the economy of this country. I don't know how, how that should be done in order to make sure that they become so generous and magnanimous and begin investing, you know, in, 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 in their country. But I want to end this part by 
referring to, to the president again. Cyril Ramaphosa is a former trade unionist, which means he has worked with workers, he has worked with people. Uh, during Codesa, he was uh, the leader of the African National Congress in terms of negotiating. So he's got the background to bring people together. And the breakthrough that we made, you know, in Codesa, that led us to the 1994 general elections. Uh, it's such a thing that we must also uh, understand that Ramaphosa played a critical role. He has also been sent uh, in some parts of the world to help uh, countries in crisis. So I think as the leader of the country, because to me, everything rises and falls on leadership. If Ramaphosa can use all the skills that he's acquired over time, lead us, you know, as he did in that famous speech in 2018, that's it is possible that he can rally a lot of people, especially that he's supposed to be the darling of the private sector. So I would say at this juncture, personally, Ramaphosa has the responsibility to lead this country out of this quagmire. I couldn't agree with you more on that score. You saw your party shots on leadership ethos that is needed at the backdrop of trust deficit. That is glaring. My take is that um, South Africa as a country has all the resources to be able to resolve the crisis that we find ourselves in. There are many countries who come to us to seek advice on how uh, they could be able to resolve the crisis that they are they are facing. For instance, the negotiated settlement principle, to a large extent, is something that we have come up with as South Africa. With it, we also brought in such concepts as sufficient consensus among uh, amongst all the social partners. So it's for us right now to say we are facing this crisis and how do we go back to what we've always been to be able to respond to these challenges that we are facing. But also as a parting shot, to commence on being able to, to adopt what we call an academic distance between him as an author uh, and him as a social activist. Because in this instance, he assumed his role uh, as a historian, because indeed... Um, he, he is an, a, a, a historian and he's even pursuing a master's degree in history. And for that, he was able to critique um, uh, what happened between 1985 and that led to the unbanning of the national liberation movements that led to the, nego- uh, the negotiator settlement. And he also reviews the Mandela presidency. So the book starts from 1985 and ends in 1999 when Mandela stepped out. It's a very excellent read, accessible to all, and I highly recommend it to everyone. Thank you very much, Saul. Uh, your party shot on on this very glorious book that you have written, which literally read half of, half of it, and I, I intend to complete it, so that I can echo the same sentiments uh, Saul is echoing at the moment. Yeah, thank you very much. The only thing I need to say is that our people and citizens of this country must not take our democracy for granted. Uh, it was a protracted struggle, you know, that led to, to the breakthrough. And I can see that uh, most people, especially the young ones, don't even register to vote. They don't care because they think life has always been like this, you know. I hope that by reading this book, they will realize how important it is for them to make our democracy work and, and participate. 
if you can think of almost 20 million people who are eligible to vote and who decide not to do so, means that our democracy is actually a brittle at this stage. And I'm hoping that South Africans will, will not take democracy for granted. As Saul indicated earlier on about Burkina Faso, Gabon, where people are still badly, you know, with political issues. We've gone past through that, you know. All we need to do is to strengthen our democracy. It is to build our economy and make sure that South Africa becomes a glorious country that we all wish it to be. Thank you very much, Dr. Mbele. Uh, thank you very much, Professor uh, Law, for your contribution. I certainly hope the listener have had interesting insights and observation about um, where we are at now. And my take-home point around this book is really the, um, the issue that you and and uh, Saul has eloquently uh, projected, i.e. the leadership. Everything uh, thrives or falls uh, uh, on the basis of the quality of leadership that we're having and, and this leadership that cuts across. And the second point that is important is the social compacting that is so desperately needed. Uh, and it, and you've hit it on the nail that, you know, on the eve of the general elections, everyone is inward looking. And the problem is bigger than us. We as a society needs to collectively get our heads together um, and to, to resolve the problem. Blame game would not help ESCOM. Blame game will not help any SOEs. Blame game will not help any investors coming through. Investors who wants to see the return on investment are interested in seeing solidarity, are interested in seeing stability. Those are the preconditions <clears throat> which will determine the extent to which we South Africans dodge yet another bullet uh, that we are facing. It has been absolutely a pleasure having you, and I hope uh, all the best uh, in this book, for it certainly delivers a very interesting perspectives on how leadership needs to be perceived. And I really like your party short around how South, Af- South Africans ought not to take democracy for granted, and which 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 is a sentiment that we we can all. Uh, echo that everybody needs to go to the ballot box, cast their votes to whoever they want to, and they should not sit back and blame uh, things unfolding in a negative way, whereas they've failed to do the bare basic uh, necessity. Having said that, we're going to have to leave it here. It has been an absolute pleasure having you. Shalom and enjoy your day further.